0: Our scripture reading for today is from the book of John, chapter 6, verse 66, and verses 68 through 70a. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? This is the word of the Lord. Will
1: you please pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we breathe in your presence that swells all around us, your presence that fills the whole earth. And we pray that we may see by that presence and hear by that presence. And that through your love made real in this place, that we might know you and may hear your word for us. Amen. So this fall, our trustees decided that we should do uh, two weeks on stewardship, which is basically like two weeks on why Urban Grace is worth supporting. And so when we set out to do this, I I planned a couple sermons. I, I knew what the first one I wanted to do was. I I wanted to tell the story about how this community has been rooted in this particular place on this corner for 135 years, and and what that decision to to stay during the hardest times has met, and how it's become this this beautiful picture of God's love and. So I planned to do that, and I did that last week. But I wasn't quite as sure what I should do uh, that next week, today. So I started just by asking myself like, what about urban grace is the most exciting and the most inspiring to me?" And you know, naturally, I thought of like everything that seems to be going well. I thought about church growth and new programs we've started. I thought about how we use art in worship and, uh, how we have different bands that reflect the diversity of the congregation. I thought about our children's ministry because the kids are everywhere. Our work in the queer community, our, our willingness and our openness to have real conversations about hard topics like race and privilege. I thought about, uh, like our theological generosity and, and how I've seen folks find a spiritual home after a long and fruitless search. And I thought about how to package that into a slick sermon. But I had a couple of concerns. My first was that our like list of accomplishments is not actually the thing that gets me the most excited. So I'd sort of be faking it. And my second concern is that pastors care way more about growth, good theology, and good preaching than anyone else. Like, real people don't really care about that. And I, I learned this over two weeks. It was six years ago, because I had some friends who moved to Seattle. I, I was living in this neighborhood in Seattle, and they're friends from high school. I moved from some fancy place on the East Coast, and, and I knew they were Christians. And they moved right around the corner from my friend's church. I was super excited to tell them about it because I knew they, they dig it because it was liberal like them. It was urban like them. It had young families with kids the same age as their kids. But before I had a chance to tell them about the perfect church, they mentioned that they had already settled at a church. It was an evangelical church about 40 minutes away. And, and my first thought was like, wait, Y'all are like dyed-in-the-wool liberals. And you're driving 40 minutes to go to a church whose theology and politics you are completely against. Like, what are you thinking? But I didn't say that because I'm not a jerk, usually. Um, at least in this instance, I wasn't a jerk. Um, I asked, like, you know, uh, what, what do you like about it? What's What's great? Why, how do you find yourself there? And my friend replied, oh, we went to our friend's baby shower. The people there were so nice. They really seemed to care about us. That was like my first little wake-up call. And then a week later, I, I saw some of my best friends from seminary, uh, a couple who grew up Southern Baptist in the Midwest, but had since become more like Progressive Christians and, and my friend and his wife were sharing that they were considering converting to the Catholic Church. And I, like, I love the Catholic Church. I actually texted this guy this morning to, as he was on his way to Mass and we were sort of appreciating his experience of Mass together. But, like, I still had some questions, so, and this is like one of my best friends, so I could be a jerk. So I like just jumped in, and I was like, what about the ordination of women? What about the LGBTQ community? What about... And my friend, Ashley, just jumped in and cut me off, and she's like, oh, oh, Ben, Ben, you don't understand. We're going to be bad Catholics. (laughs) And then she shared about how, like, well, yeah, I've got problems with all that stuff, too, and we'll talk to our kids about it. But... In Catholicism, they'd found the richest spiritual community they'd ever known. And for my friends, it all started with community. That was the foundation of their spiritual life. And, you know, they're not the only ones. You know who else needed community? It's Jesus. Jesus' entire ministry was done in and through community. That's the first thing Jesus does. He gathers a community of disciples. And for years, he lives with these people. They go everywhere he goes. I mean, I think, like, almost theologically, we almost want to think about Jesus as this strong, independent person, but he was not a lone ranger relying on the power of a a perfectly crafted sermon. Jesus relied on the power of soup. Like, he ate meals with people. He listened. He built relationships with the men and women who accompanied him. And when Jesus did teach, he didn't tell people what doctrine to believe or what rules to obey. He invited people to follow him and join his community. It, it was through community that Jesus touched people's lives. But, but even more than that, I think that uh, Jesus' community actually sustained and supported him. And there are a few people, places that I see this throughout the scriptures. But the one that really jumps out to me is John 6 uh, that we read today. In this passage, I know we just sort of pick some select verses because it's... Jesus is... Well, I'll say this. Jesus has been teaching, and people have been joining his community. He's been gaining followers. It's been growing, and it's going great. And then Jesus shares some really hard teaching, confusing stuff. And the text says that because of his hard teaching... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. This is really almost anywhere in the Gospels, particularly by his disciples, Jesus gets rejected by most of his disciples at the end of John 6. And you can hear the pain in his voice as he turns to his 12 disciples and asks, Are you going to leave me too? Jesus is wondering if he's just lost all his friends. Will everyone who he loves abandon him? Always first to speak, Peter gives an honest response. Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't get defensive and say, no, no, we never leave you. He's actually really vulnerable in how he responds. He says, Jesus, you're all we have. You're it. We don't have anywhere else to go. And and this has always jumped out at me as such a tender moment. It's, It's a moment where you can see how much these two men in this community love one another. They're both a little bit scared of what it mean to lose one another. They they both seem raw and vulnerable. Like even Jesus. Jesus needed his community just like they needed him. Right? Jesus is really human here. He just needs his friends. And that's that's honestly that's a little bit hard to explain theologically. As Jesus shouldn't need anyone. He's the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Yet, he seems vulnerable at the possibility of losing his friends. Because as it turns out, Jesus is a person with feelings. That, that's what the incarnation means. God being made known in a real person who needs community. Like, God doesn't just, like, hang out, hovering above it all. Jesus needs community because he's a person. And because it's in and through community that God's love is made real. My friend Chris likes to say that Christ is always wanting to become flesh. Love is always wanting to become visible Love's always wanting to be made real and tangible, and it won't stop until it finds willing participants. And what I think he means by that is that we've got this idea about who Christ is or an idea about who Jesus is. We have ideas about what it means to have faith. Ideas about what it is to love another person. But, but those ideas... They need to be embodied and lived out for that love to become real. God needs to be incarnate for Christ to be real. And, and this has to take place in community, in real people. And, and this might sound sort of theoretical or obvious, um, but I think it's actually a real thing for us today. Uh, because we can struggle uh, with how easy it is to get caught up in a world divided by ideology. And, and I'm not saying that ideology doesn't matter because so many of us fight for what we believe. We march in the streets. We send letters to city council. We support organizations that promote the values we believe in. And, and like I totally think that this matters. But as much as I participate in all of these things, I still get overwhelmed by the immensity of these things I believe and my inability to change the world around me. And, and what sometimes when I'm feeling that, when I feel like I, you know, frankly fight like hell and nothing changes, there's this letter that I'll read. It's by the Catholic monk Thomas Merton. In the 70s, he was corresponding with a young activist who was just overwhelmed by the Vietnam War. And Merton writes this long, beautiful response where he he acknowledges the man's pain and frustration. But eventually, Merton tells him, do not depend on the hope of results. When you're doing the sort of work you've taken on, essentially apostolic work, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. And there, too, a great deal has to be gone through as you gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. The range tends to narrow, but it gets much more real. In the end, it's the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. Relationships are where love is made real. Community is where we experience the incarnation, living and breathing in our midst. Spiritual communities are like a new worship professor who used to say, church is like practice. Practice for life. We come together. We tell the truth. We practice vulnerability by sharing our lives, by admitting aloud In words and in prayers, we say our hopes for the future. And we build community so that we can find life. Because it's in community that God's love is made real. And and I will say, that doesn't mean that community is perfect. Any community. Jesus wasn't, neither is ours. I mean, the, the disciples rarely seem to understand what Jesus is talking about. They argue about who's the best. They bail on him in his time of need. And yet, Jesus needed them because that's how God's love was lived out. And I think it's sort of like that in the church. I mean, many of us have been a part of churches or spiritual communities that that gave us deep wounds. And, And I'm sure even here we still wound people and, In 20 years, we'll see ways that we wounded people and ways that make us cringe. But we stick around because there's something here. In this community, Christ's love becomes real and tangible. And that's not something we can quantify. It's not neat and tidy. And it's definitely not about, like, cool programming or new ministry models. Love made real is messy. And it goes beyond the bounds of our, of our stone walls. And, and so when I asked myself, all right, so what's the story I want to tell? What's the most exciting thing happening at Urban Grace? i realized it's a story that doesn't really even happen at the church. I mean, it, it does a little bit because uh, I heard about it in my office talking with Jen Dean, who's our amazing director of operations, who you heard from, uh, during the announcements, Jen's been here for 10 years and she runs the finances, our logistics, she supervises the staff with me. So she and I often meet to just discuss church business. But we weren't doing that this day. We were talking about life and Jen and Sean's experience with the foster care system and how hard it was to find a placement with their particular circumstances. This was I don't know a year and a half ago or so. And the the deans had already adopted Jamil through the foster care system, and they were looking for a single boy who was ready to be adopted. But, you know, they had no control, and at first this conversation was really just about something that was difficult and outside their control. But then a couple months later, Jen came into the office and told me that the next day they were meeting with a social worker about a placement. So I was like, oh, that's so great. What's his name? And Jen was sort of like, his? Him? It's theirs. Them. And she shared that there were these brothers named Jalil and JC who'd been bounced around the foster care system and they needed a home. And, and Jen and Sean weren't actually planning to adopt two boys, uh, two more boys. The idea of two boys was plenty. But they knew that these boys needed a home, so they changed plans, and Jen and Sean and Jamil welcomed Jalil and JC into their home. And this was exciting and scary and hard and all the things that, that it is. But it was going pretty well until a few weeks later when they got some news. There was actually a third brother. His name was Jameer, and he was just sort of like lost in the foster care system a little bit. Like he was not set to be adopted uh, by the same family. He was actually sort of set up to maybe be adopted by another family, and Jen and Sean really wanted to keep those three boys together, but. They knew they didn't have room in their house or room in their lives for four boys. And and this should be the end of the story, but it's not, because of the spiritual community that surrounds them. Jen and Sean knew that another couple, Amber and Jazz, were looking to adopt from the foster care system. And actually, Amber and Jasmine were planning to adopt a sibling set themselves because it's really hard for siblings to get adopted together. They had a vision where they could welcome a family, welcome brothers into a loving home. That's what they found, but in a different way. When they learned about Jalil and J.C.'s little brother, Jameer, they they got in touch with their social worker and asked if they might be able to adopt him. And there were all kinds of dramatic details, like their license not being ready and and Jameer's really tough experience sort of bouncing around. But right as their license came through, Jameer was in need of a forever home. And so on September 15th, last year, 2017, Jasmine and Amber and Jameer and Madison and Jen and Sean and Jamil and Jalil and JC. That's right. They went to the courthouse and officially became a family. I mean, two families, a messy family. That's, you know, it's, it's not easy to love and support kids who are recovering from trauma. But like every time that love is incarnate, it's messy and real. And beautiful. You know, the boys ask, you know, like, well, ask Jen, like, so Amber and Jasmine are our aunts, and Jameer is my brother, but Madison is Jameer's sister, so is Madison my cousin or my sister? <laughs> right? That's, they're smart. As are their parents who simply reply, yes. And I don't know, I just have this vision of, like, these boys coming to church where they get to see their, their brother, cousin, sister, cousin, aunt, uncle, their, their family. And it is actually in this place and in this community that it's made real. It's messy and real and beautiful. And to me, that's, that's a perfect picture of the love that emerges from those relationships and from this community. Because this is what community does. In community, God's love is made real. And, and Urban Grace didn't make this happen through some program or some mission or, uh, something I can like brag about. But it did happen because of Urban Grace. The community brought these families into contact and empowered them to love in an overflowing, generous way. And, and this is what I mean when I say that God's love is made real. And, and that's why I'm committed to this place, because God's love is made real here. And it, it sort of ripples far beyond the walls. And it's why I hope you are here too. And and I'm probably supposed to have a pitch in here, um, where I like I ask for money um, because we do need it. Um, you you saw how many kids we had today. Like our Sunday school is blowing up, which means as are a lot of different things in our church, which you know means that our expenses grow, and we want to continue to to stay out in front and expand our ministries, but. That can only happen with the support of the community. So yeah, we need your support. But I think more than that, we need you. Like we want you to be a part of this place, to be loved and to love, to share your lives and your hopes, to be in community with us. Because I I believe that as, as we find community together, we will find Christ in the flesh in our lives. Amen.